Part Two of The Ethical Engineer by Harry Harrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of The Ethical Engineer by Harry Harrison. Chapter Four. It did not kill him at once, but stood staring down at him. And as the slow seconds ticked by and Jason was still alive, he forced himself to consider this menace that appeared from the blackness. K'ivistael, the creature said, and for the first time Jason realized it was human. The meaning of the question picked at the edge of his exhausted brain. He felt he could almost understand it, though he had never heard the language before. He tried to answer, but there was only a hoarse gargle from his throat. Ven que en torcoi repido. More light sprang from the darkness inland, and with them the sound of running feet. As they came closer, Jason had a cleaner look at the man above him and could understand why he had mistaken him for some inhuman creature. His limbs were completely wrapped in lengths of stained leather. His chest and body protected by thick and overlapping leather plates covered with blood-red designs. Over his head was fitted the cochlea-shaped shell of some animal, spiraling to a point in front. Two small openings had been drilled in it for eye-holes. Great finger-long teeth had been set in the lower edge of the shell to heighten the already fearsome appearance. The only thing at all human about the creature was the matted and filthy beard that trickled out of the shell below the teeth. There were too many other details for Jason to absorb so suddenly. Something bulky slung behind one shoulder, dark objects at the waist. A heavy club reached and prodded Jason in the ribs, but he was too close to unconsciousness to resist. A guttural command halted the torchbearers a full five meters from the spot where Jason lay. He wondered vaguely why the armored man had not let them approach closer since the light from their torches barely reached this far. Everything on this planet seemed inexplicable. For a few moments Jason must have lost consciousness because when he looked again the torch was stuck in the sand at his side and the armored man had one of Jason's boots off and was pulling at the other. Jason could only writhe feebly but not prevent the theft. For some reason he could not force his body to follow his will. His sense of time seemed to have altered as well, and though every second dragged heavily by, events occurred with startling rapidity. The boots were gone now, and the man fumbled at Jason's clothes, stopping every few seconds to glance up at the row of torchbearers. The magnetic seals were alien to him. The sharp teeth sewn into the leather over his knuckles dug into Jason's flesh as he struggled to open the seals or tear the resistant metal cloth. He was growling with impatience when he accidentally touched the release button on the med kit and it dropped into his hand. The shining gadget seemed to please him, but when one of the sharp needles slipped through his thick hand coverings and stabbed him, he howled with rage, throwing the machine down and grinding it into a splintered ruin in the sand. The loss of this irreplaceable device goaded Jason into motion. He sat up and was trying to reach the med kit when unconsciousness surged over him again. Sometime before dawn the pain in his head drove him reluctantly back to awareness. There were some foul-smelling hides draped over him that retained a little of his body heat. He pulled away the stifling fold that covered his face and stared up at the stars, cold points of light that glittered in the frigid night. The air was a stimulant, and he sucked deep gasps of it that burned his throat but seemed to clear his thoughts. For the first time he realized that his disorientation had been caused by that crack on the head he had received when the ship crashed. His exploring fingers found a swollen rawness on his skull. He must have a brain concussion. That would explain his earlier inability to move or think straight. The cold air was numbing his face, and he willingly pulled the hairy skin back over his head. He wondered what had happened to Micah Salmon after the local thug in the horror outfit had bashed him with the club. This was a messy and unexpected end for the man after he had managed to survive the crash of the ship. Jason had no special affection for the undernourished zealot, but he did owe him a life. Micah had saved him after the crash only to be murdered himself by this local assassin. 
Jason made a mental note to kill the man just as soon as he was physically up to it. At the same time, he was a little astonished at his reflexive acceptance of the need for this bloodthirsty atonement of a life for a life. Apparently his long stay on Pyrrus had trodden down his normal dislike for killing except in self-defense, and from what he had seen so far of this world, the Pyrran training would certainly be most useful. The sky showed gray through a tear in the hide, and he pushed it back to look at the dawn. Micah Salmon lay next to him, his head projecting from a covering fur. His hair was matted and caked with dark blood, but he was still breathing. Harder to kill than I thought, Jason grunted as he levered himself painfully up on one elbow and took a good look at this world where his spaceship sabotage had landed him. It was a grim desert, lumped with huddled bodies like the aftermath of a battle at world's end. A few of them were stumbling to their feet, holding their skins around them, the only signs of life in that immense waste of gritty sand. On one side a ridge of dunes cut off sight of the sea, but he could hear the dull boom of waves on the shore. White frost rimmed the ground, and the chill wind made his eyes blink and water. On the top of the dunes a remembered figure suddenly appeared, the armored man doing something with what appeared to be lengths of rope. There was metallic tinkling, suddenly cut off. Micah Salmon groaned and stirred. "'How do you feel?' Jason asked. "'Those are two of the finest bloodshot eyeballs I have ever seen.' "'Where am I?' "'Now, that is a bright and original question. I didn't pick you for the type who watched historical space operas on the TV. I have no idea where we are. But I can give you a brief synopsis of how we arrived here, if you're up to it. I remember we swam ashore, then something evil came from the darkness, like a demon from hell. We fought. And he bashed in your head. One quick blow, and that was about all the fight there was. I had a better look at your demon, though I was in no better condition to fight him than you are. He's a man dressed in a weird outfit out of an attic's nightmare and appears to be the boss of this crew of rugged campers. Other than that, I have little idea of what's going on except that he stole my boots and I'm going to get them back if I have to kill him for them. Do not lust after material things, Micah intoned seriously, and do not talk of killing a man for material gain. You are evil, Jason, and my boots are gone, and my clothes, too." Micah had thrown back his covering skins and made this startling discovery. "'Belial!' he roared. "'Asmodeus, Abaddon, Apollyon, and Beelzebub!' "'Very nice,' Jason said admiringly. "'You really have been studying up on your demonology. Were you just listing them or calling on them for aid?' "'Silence, blasphemer! I have been robbed!' He rose to his feet, and the wind whistling around his almost bare body quickly gave his skin a light touch of blue. I'm going to find the evil creature that did this and force him to return what is mine. Micah turned to leave, but Jason reached out and grabbed his ankle with a wrestling grip, twisted it, and brought the man thudding to the ground. The fall dazed him, and Jason pulled the skins back over the raw-boned form. We're even, Jason said. You saved my life last night. Just now, I saved yours. You're barehanded and wounded, while the old man of the mountain up there is a walking armory, and anyone with the personality to wear that kind of an outfit will kill you as easily as he picks his teeth. So take it easy and try to avoid trouble. There's a way out of this mess. There's a way out of every mess, if you look for it, and I'm going to find it. In fact, I'm going to take a walk right now and start my research. Agreed? A groan was his only answer, since Micah was unconscious again, fresh blood seeping from his injured scalp. Jason stood and wrapped his hides about his body as some protection from the wind, tying the loose ends together. Then he kicked through the sand until he found a smooth rock that would fit inside his fist with just the end protruding, and thus armed made his way out through the stirring forms of the sleepers. Micah was conscious again when Jason returned, and the sun was well above the horizon. The people were all awake now, a shuffling, scratching herd of about thirty men, women, and children. They were identical in their filth and crude skin wrappings, milling about with a random motion or sitting blankly on the ground. 
They showed no interest at all in the two strangers. Jason handed a tarred leather cup to Micah and squatted next to him. Drink that. It's water. The only thing that anyone here had to drink. I didn't find any food. He still had the stone in his hand, and while he talked he rubbed it on the sand. The end was moist and red, and some long hairs were stuck in it. I took a good look around this camp, and there's very little more than you can see from here. Just this crowd of broken-down types, a few bundles rolled in hide, and some of them are carrying skin water bottles. They have a simple, me-stronger pecking order, so I pecked a bit, and we can drink. Food comes next. Who are they? What are we doing? Micah asked, mumbling a little, obviously still suffering the after-effects of the blow. Jason looked at the contused skull and decided not to touch it. The wound had bled freely and clotted. Washing it off with the highly dubious water would accomplish little and might add infection to their other troubles. I'm only sure of one thing, Jason said. They're slaves. I don't know why they are here and what they are doing or where they are going, but their status is painfully clear. Ours, too. Old Nasty up there on the hill is the boss. The rest of us are slaves. Slaves? Micah snorted, the word penetrating through the pain in his head. It is abominable. The slaves must be freed. No lectures, please, and try to be realistic, even if it hurts. There are only two slaves that need freeing here, you and I. These people seem nicely adjusted to the status quo, and I see no reason to change it. I'm not starting any abolitionist campaigns until I can see my way clearly out of this mess, and I probably won't start any then, either. This planet has been going on a long time without me, and will probably keep rolling along once I'm gone. Coward! You must fight for the truth, and the truth will make you free! I can hear those capital letters again, Jason groaned. The only thing right now that is going to make me free is me, which may be bad poetry. But it is still the truth. The situation here is rough, but not unbeatable. So listen and learn. The boss, his name is Ch'aka, in case you care, seems to have gone off on a hunt of some kind. He's not far away and will be back soon, so I'll try to give you the entire setup quickly. I thought I recognized the language and I was right. It's a corrupt form of Esperanto, the language all the Torito worlds speak. This altered language, plus the fact that these people live about one step above the Stone Age culture, is pretty sure evidence that they are cut off from any contact with the rest of the galaxy, though I hope not. There may be a trading base somewhere on the planet, and if there is, we'll find it later. We have enough other things to worry about right now, but at least we can speak the language. These people have contracted and lost a lot of sounds, and even introduced a glottal stop something that no language needs, but with a little effort the meaning can still be made out. I do not speak Esperanto. Then learn it. It's easy enough, even in this jumbled form. And shut up and listen. These locals are born and bred slaves, and it is all they know. There is a little squabbling in the ranks, with the bigger ones pushing the work on the weak ones when Ch'aka isn't looking. But I have that situation well in hand. Ch'aka is our big problem, and we have to find out a lot more things before we can tackle him. He is boss, fighter, father, provider, and destiny for this mob, and he seems to know his job. So try to be a good slave for a while. Slave? I? Micah arched his back and tried to rise. Jason pushed him back to the ground, harder than was necessary. Yes, you, and me too. That is the only way we are going to survive in this arrangement. Do what everyone else does. Obey orders, and you stand a good chance of staying alive until we can find a way out of this tangle." Micah's answer was drowned out in a roar from the dunes as Ch'aka returned. The slaves climbed quickly to their feet, grabbing up their bundles, and began to form a single wide-spaced line. Jason helped Micah to stand and wrap strips of skin around his feet, then supported most of his weight as they stumbled to a place in the open formation. Once they were all in position, Ch'aka kicked the nearest one, and they began walking slowly forward, looking carefully at the ground as they went. 
Jason had no idea of the significance of the action, but as long as he and Mikah weren't bothered, it didn't matter. He had enough work cut out for him just to keep the wounded man on his feet. Somehow Mikah managed to dredge up enough strength to keep going. One of the slaves pointed down and shouted, and the line stopped. He was too far away for Jason to make out the cause of the excitement, but the man bent over and scratched a hole with a short length of pointed wood. In a few seconds he dug up something round and not quite the size of his hand. He raised it over his head and brought the thing to Ch'aka at a shambling run. The slave-master took it and bit off a chunk, and when the man who had found it turned away he gave him a lusty kick. The line moved forward again. Two more of the mysterious objects were found, both of which Ch'aka ate as well. Only when his immediate hunger was satisfied did he make any attempt to be the good provider. When the next one was found, he called over a slave and threw the object into a crudely woven basket he was carrying on his back. After this, the basket-toting slave walked directly in front of Ch'aka, who was carefully watching that every one of the things that was dug up went into the basket. Jason wondered what they were, and they were edible, too. An angry rumbling in his stomach reminded him. The slave next in line to Jason shouted and pointed to the sand. Jason let Micah sink to a sitting position when they stopped and watched with interest as the slave attacked the ground with his piece of wood, scratching around a tiny sprig of green that projected from the desert sand. His burrowings uncovered a wrinkled gray object from which the green leaves were growing. A root or tuber of some kind, it appeared as edible as a piece of stone to Jason but obviously not to the slave, who drooled heavily and actually had the temerity to sniff the root. Ch'aka howled with anger at this, and when the slave had dropped the root into the basket with the others, he received a kick so strong that he had to limp back painfully to his position in line. Soon after this Ch'aka called a halt, and the tattered slaves huddled around while he poked through the basket. He called them over one at a time and gave them one or more of the roots according to some merit system of his own. The basket was almost empty when he poked his club at Jason. Ke'i nam hevasvi? he asked. Mia namo estas Jason, mia amico estas Mica. Jason answered in correct Esperanto that Ch'aka seemed to understand well enough because he grunted and dug through the contents of the basket. His masked face stared at them, and Jason could feel the impact of the unseen watching eyes. The club pointed again. Where you come from? That you ship that burn? Sink? That was our ship. We come from far away. From other side of ocean? This was apparently the largest distance the slaver could imagine. From the other side of the ocean, correct. Jason was in no mood to deliver a lecture on astronomy. When do we eat? You a rich man in your country. Got a ship. Got shoes. Now I got your shoes. You a slave here. My slave. You both my slaves. I'm your slave. I'm your slave, Jason said resignedly. But even slaves have to eat. Where's the food? Ch'aka grubbed around in the basket until he found a tiny and withered root which he broke in half and threw into the sand in front of Jason. Work hard. You get more. Jason picked up the pieces and brushed away as much of the dirt as he could. He handed one to Micah and took a tentative bite out of the other. It was gritty with sand and tasted like slightly rancid wax. It took a distinct effort to eat the repulsive thing, but he did. Without a doubt it was food, no matter how unwholesome, and would do until something better came along. What did you talk about? Micah asked, grinding his own portion between his teeth. Just swapping lies. He thinks we're his slaves, and I agreed. But it's just temporary," Jason added as anger colored Micah's face and he started to climb to his feet. Jason pulled him back down. This is a strange planet. You're injured. We have no food or water and no idea at all how to survive in this place. The only thing we can do to stay alive is to go along with what old Ugly there says. If he wants to call us slaves, fine. We're slaves. Better to die free than to live in chains. Will you stop the nonsense? Better to live in chains and learn how to get rid of them. That way you end up alive free, rather than dead free. A much more attractive state. Now shut up and eat. 
We can't do anything until you're out of the walking wounded class. For the rest of the day the line of walkers plodded across the sand, and in addition to helping Mica, Jason found two of the krenoi, the edible roots. They stopped before dusk and dropped gratefully to the sand. When the food was divided they received a slightly larger portion, as evidence perhaps of Jason's attention to the work. Both men were exhausted and fell asleep as soon as it was dark. During the following morning they had their first break from the walking routine. Their food-searching always paralleled the unseen sea, and one slave walked the crest of the dunes that hid the water from sight. He must have seen something of interest, because he leaped down from the mound and waved both arms wildly. Ch'aka ran heavily to the dunes and talked with the scout, then booted the man from his presence. Jason watched with growing interest as he unwrapped the bulky package slung from his back and disclosed an efficient-looking crossbow, cocking it by winding on a built-in crank. This complicated and deadly piece of machinery seemed very much out of place with the primitive slave-holding society, and Jason wished that he could get a better look at the device. Ch'aka fumbled a quarrel from another pouch and fitted it to the bow. The slaves sat silently on the sand while their master stalked along the base of the dunes, then wormed his way over them and out of sight, creeping silently on his stomach. A few minutes later there was a scream of pain from behind the dunes, and all the slaves jumped to their feet and raced to see. Jason left Micah where he lay and was in the first rank of observers that broke over the hillocks and onto the shore. They stopped at the usual distance and shouted compliments about the quality of the shot and what a mighty hunter Ch'aka was. Jason had to admit there was a certain truth in the claims. A large, furred amphibian lay at the water's edge the fletched end of the crossbow bolt projecting from its thick neck and a thin stream of blood running down to mix with the surging waves. Meat! Meat today! Ch'aka kills the Rosmaro! Ch'aka is wonderful! Hail Ch'aka! Great provider! Jason shouted to get into the swing of things. When do we eat? The master ignored his slaves, sitting heavily on the dune until he regained his breath after the stalk. Then, after cocking the crossbow again, he stalked over to the beast and with his knife cut out the quarrel, notching it against the bowstring still dripping with blood. Get wood for fire, he commanded. You, Upsweeney, you use the knife. Shuffling backwards, Ch'aka sat down on a hillock and pointed the crossbow at the slave who approached the kill. Ch'aka had left his knife in the animal, and Upsweeney pulled it free and began to methodically flay and butcher the beast. All the time he worked, he carefully kept his back turned to Ch'aka and the aimed bow. A trusting soul, our slave-driver, Jason mumbled to himself as he joined the others in searching the shore for driftwood. Ch'aka had all the weapons, as well as a constant fear of assassination. If Upsweeney tried to use the knife for anything other than the intended piece of work, he would get the crossbow quarrel in the back of his head. Very efficient. Enough driftwood was found to make a sizable fire, and when Jason returned with his contribution, the Rosmaro had been hacked into large chunks. Ch'aka kicked his slaves away from the heap of wood and produced a small device from another of his sacks. Interested, Jason pushed as close as he dared into the front rank of the watching circle. Though he had never seen one of them before, the operation of the fire-maker was obvious to him. A spring-loaded arm drove a fragment of stone against a piece of steel. Sparks flew out and were caught in a cup of tinder, where Ch'aka blew on them until they burst into flame. Where had the fire-lighter and the crossbow come from? They were evidence of a higher level of culture than that possessed by these slave-holding nomads. This was the first bit of evidence that Jason had seen that there might be more to the cultural life of this planet than they had seen since their landing. Later, while they were gorging themselves on the seared meat, he drew Micah aside and pointed this out. There's hope yet. These illiterate thugs never manufactured that crossbow or firelighter. We must find out where they came from and see about getting there ourselves. I had a quick look at the quarrel when Ch'aka pulled it out, and I'll swear that it was turned from steel. This has significance? Micah asked, puzzled. It means an industrial society and possible interstellar contact. Then we must ask Ch'aka where he obtained them and leave at once. 
There will be authorities. We will contact them, explain the situation, obtain transportation to Cassilia. I, I will not place you under arrest until that time." "'How considerate of you,' Jason said, lifting one eyebrow. Mica was absolutely impossible, and Jason probed at his moral armor to see if there were any weak spots. "'Won't you feel guilty about bringing me back to get killed? After all, we are companions in trouble, and I did save your life.' "'I will grieve, Jason. I can see that though you are evil, you are not completely evil, and given the right training could be fitted for a useful place in society. But my personal grief must not be allowed to alter events. You forget that you committed a crime and must pay the penalty." Ch'aka belched cavernously inside his shell helmet and howled at his slaves. "'Enough eating, you pigs! You get fat! Wrap the meat and carry it. We have light yet to look for Krenoi. Move!' Once more the line was formed and began its slow pace across the desert. More of the edible roots were found, and once they stopped briefly to fill the water-bags at a spring that bubbled up out of the sand. The sun dropped toward the horizon, and what little warmth it possessed was absorbed by a bank of clouds. Jason looked around and shivered, then noticed the line of dots moving on the horizon. He nudged Micah, who still leaned heavily on him. Looks like company coming. I wonder where they fit into the program. Pain had blurred Micah's attention, and he took no notice, and surprisingly enough neither did any of the other slaves nor Ch'aka. The dots expanded and became another row of marchers, apparently absorbed in the same task as Jason's group. They plodded forward, making a slow examination of the sand, followed behind by the solitary figure of their master. The two lines slowly approached each other, paralleling the shore. Near the dunes was a crude mound of stones, and the line of walking slaves stopped as soon as they reached it, dropping with satisfied grunts onto the sand. The Karen was obviously a border marker, and Ch'aka walked to it and rested his foot on one of the stones, watching while the other line of slaves approached. They too stopped at the Karen and settled to the ground. Both groups stared with dull-eyed lack of interest, and only the slave-masters showed any animation. The other master stopped a good ten paces before he reached Ch'aka and waved an evil-looking stone hammer over his head. "'Hate you, Ch'aka!' he roared. "'Hate you, Fasimba!' boomed back the answer. The exchange was as formal as a pas de deux, and just about as warlike. Both men shook their weapons and shouted a few insults, then settled down to a quiet conversation. Fasimba was garbed in the same type of hideous and fear-inspiring outfit as Ch'aka, differing only in unimportant details. Instead of a conch, his head was encased in the skull of one of the amphibious rosemaroi, brightened up with some extra tusks and horns. The differences between the two men were all minor, and mostly a matter of decoration or variation of weapon design. They were obviously slave-masters and equals. "'Killed a rosmaro today, second time in ten days,' Ch'aka said. "'You got a good piece of coast, plenty rosemaroi. Where the two slaves you owe me? I owe you two slaves? You owe me two slaves. Don't play like stupid. I got the iron arrows for you from the Zertanoi. One slave you paid with died. You still owe another one. I got two slaves for you. I got two slaves more. I pulled out of the ocean. You got a good piece of coast. Ch'aka walked down his line of slaves until he came to the over-bold one he had half-crippled with a kick the day before. Pulling him to his feet, he booted him toward the other mob. "'Here's a good one,' he said, delivering the goods with a last parting kick. "'Looks skinny. Not too good.' "'No. All muscles. Works hard. Doesn't eat much.' "'You're a liar.' "'Hate you, Fasimba. Hate you, Ch'aka. Where's the other one?' Got a good one. Stranger from the ocean. He can tell you funny stories. Work hard." Jason turned in time to avoid the full force of the kick, but it was still strong enough to knock him sprawling. Before he could get up, Ch'aka had clutched Micah Salmon by the arm and dragged him across the invisible line to the other group of slaves. Fasimba stalked over to examine him, prodding him with a spiked toe. "'Don't look good. Big hole on the head.' "'He works hard,' Ch'aka said. 
whole almost healed. He very strong. You give me new one if he dies? Fasimba asked doubtfully. I give you. Hate you, Fasimba. Hate you, Jaka. The slave herds were prodded to their feet and moved back the way they had come, and Jason shouted after Jaka. Wait! Don't sell my friend. We work better together. You can get rid of someone else. The slaves gaped at this sudden outburst, and Ch'aka wheeled, raising his club. You shut up. You're a slave. You tell me once more to do what, and I kill you. Jason shut up, since it was very obvious that this was the only thing he could do. He had a few qualms about Micah's possible fate. If he survived the wound, he was certainly not the type to bow to the inevitabilities of slaveholding life. Yet Jason had done his best to save him, and that was that. Now Jason would think about Jason for a while. They made a brief march before dark, apparently just until the other slaves were out of sight, then stopped for the night. Jason settled himself into the lee of a mound that broke the force of the wind a bit and unwrapped a piece of scorched meat he had salvaged from the earlier feast. It was tough and oily, but far superior to the barely edible crinoi that made up the greater part of the native diet. He chewed noisily on the bone and watched while one of the other slaves sidled over toward him. "'Give me some your meat.' The slave asked in a whining voice, and only when she talked did Jason realize that this was a girl. All the slaves were alike in their matted hair and skin wrappings. He ripped off a chunk of meat. Here, sit down and eat it. What's your name? In exchange for his generosity, he intended to get some information from his captive audience. Ijal. She tore at the meat, held tightly in one fist, while the index finger of her free hand scratched for enemies in her tangled hair. Where do you come from? Did you always live here? Like this? How do you ask a slave if she has always been a slave? Not here. I come from Bulwejo first, then Fasimba. Now I belong to Ch'aka. What or who is Bulwejo? Someone like our boss, Ch'aka? She nodded, gnawing at the meat. And the Zertanoi, that Fasimba gets his arrows from, who are they? You don't know much, she said, finishing the meat and licking the grease from her fingers. I know enough to have meat when you don't have any, so don't abuse my hospitality. Who are the Zertanoi? Everyone knows who they are, she shrugged with incomprehension and looked for a soft spot in the sand to sit down. They live in the desert. They go around in Karoi. They, they stink. They have many nice things. One of them gave me my best thing. If I show it to you, you won't take it? No, I won't touch it, but I would like to see anything they have made. Here, here's some more meat. Now let me see your best thing. Ijal rooted in her skins for a hidden pocket and dragged out something that she concealed in her clenched fist. She held it out proudly and opened it, and there was enough light left for Jason to make out the rough form of a red glass bead. "'Isn't this so very nice?' she asked. "'Very nice,' Jason agreed, and for an instant felt a touch of real sorrow when he looked at the pathetic bauble. This girl's ancestors had come to this planet in spaceships with a knowledge of the most advanced sciences. Cut off, their children had degenerated into this barely conscious slaves who could pride a worthless piece of glass above all things. I like you. I'll, I'll show you my best thing again. I like you, too. Good night. Chapter 5 Ijal stayed near Jason the next day and took the next station in line when the endless Krenoi hunt began. Whenever it was possible, he questioned her, and before noon had extracted all of her meager knowledge of affairs beyond the barren coastal plain where they lived. The ocean was a mystery that produced edible animals, fish, and an occasional human corpse. Ships could be seen from time to time offshore, but nothing was known about them. On the other flank, the territory was bounded by desert even more inhospitable than the one in which they scratched out their existence. A waste of lifeless sand habitable only by the Zertanoi and their mysterious Karoi. These last could be animals, or mechanical transportation of some kind. Either was possible from Ijal's vague description. Ocean, coast, and desert, 
These made up all of her world, and she could conceive of nothing that might exist beyond. Jason knew there was more. The crossbow was proof enough of that, and he had every intention of finding out where it came from. In order to do that, he was going to have to change his slave status when the proper time came. He was developing a certain facility in dodging Ch'aka's heavy boot. The work was never hard, and there was ample food. Being a slave left him with no responsibilities other than obeying orders, and he had ample opportunity to discover what he could about this planet, so that when he finally did leave, he would be as well prepared as was possible. Later in the day another column of marching slaves was sighted in the distance, on a course paralleling their own, and Jason expected a repeat performance of the previous day's meeting. He was agreeably surprised that it was not. The sight of the others threw Ch'aka into an immediate rage that sent his slaves rushing for safety in all directions. By leaping into the air, howling with anger and beating his club against his thick leather armor, he managed to work himself into quite a state before starting off on a slogging run. Jason followed close behind him, greatly interested by this new turn of affairs. Ahead of them the other slaves scattered, and from their midst burst another armed and armored figure. They churned towards each other at top speed, and Jason hoped for a shattering crash when they met. However, they slowed before they hit and began circling each other, spitting curses. Hate you, Mashika! Hate you, Ch'aka! The words were the same, but shouted with fierce meaning, with no touch of formality this time. Kill you, Mashika! You coming again on my part of the ground with your carrion meat slaves! You lie, Ch'aka! This ground mine from way back! I kill you way back! Ch'aka leaped in as he screamed the words and swung a roundhouse blow with his club that would have broken the other man in two if it had connected. But Mashika was expecting this and fell back, swinging a counter-blow with his own club that Ch'aka easily avoided. There followed a quick exchange of clubwork that did little more than fan the air, until suddenly both men were locked together and their fight began in earnest. They rolled together on the ground, grunting savagely, tearing at each other. The heavy clubs were of no use this close, and were dropped in favor of knives and knees. Jason can understand now why Ch'aka had the long tusks strapped to his kneecaps. It was a no-holds-barred fight, and each man was trying as hard as possible to kill his opponent. The leather armor made this difficult, and the struggle continued, littering the sand with broken-off animal teeth, discarded weapons, and other debris. It looked like it would be called a draw when both men separated for a breather, but they dived right back in again. It was Ch'aka who broke the stalemate when he plunged his dagger into the ground and on the next roll caught the handle in his mouth. Holding his opponent's arms in both his hands, he plunged his head down and managed to find a weak spot in the other's armor. Mashika howled and pulled free, and when he climbed to his feet, blood was running down his arm and dripping from his fingertips. Ch'aka jumped after him, but the wounded man grabbed up his club in time to ward off the charge. Stumbling backward, he managed to pick up most of his discarded weapons with his wounded arm and beat a hasty retreat. Ch'aka ran after him a short way, shouting praise of his own strength and abilities and of his opponent's cowardice. Jason saw a short, sharp horn from some sea animal lying in the churned-up sand and quickly picked it up before Ch'aka turned back. Once his enemy had been chased out of sight, Ch'aka carefully searched the battleground and scavenged anything of military value. Though there was still some hours of daylight left, he signaled a halt and distributed the evening ration of Krenoi. Jason sat and chewed his portion reflectively, while Ijal leaned against his side, her shoulder moving rhythmically as she scratched some hidden mite. Lice were inescapable. They hid in the crevices of the badly cured hides and emerged with clicking jaws whenever the warmth of human flesh came near. Jason had his quota of the pests and found his scratching keeping time with hers. This syncopation of scratch triggered the anger that had been building within him, slow and unnoticed. I'm serving notice, he said, jumping to his feet. I'm through with this slave business. Which way is the nearest spot to the desert where I can find the Zertanoi? Over there, a, a two-day walk. How are you going to kill Ch'aka? I'm not going to kill Ch'aka. I'm just leaving. I've enjoyed his hospitality and his boot long enough and feel like striking out for myself. 
You, you can't do that, she gasped. You will be killed. Chaaka can't very well kill me if I'm not here. Everybody will kill you. That is the law. Runaway slaves are always killed. Jason sat down again and cracked another chunk from his crenoy and ruminated over it. You've talked me into staying a while, but I have no particular desire now to kill Chaaka, even though he did steal my boots, and I don't see how killing him will help me any. You are stupid. After you kill Chaaka, you'll be the new Chaaka. Then you can do what you want. Of course. Now that he had been told, the social setup appeared obvious. Because he had seen slaves and slaveholders, Jason had held the mistaken notion that they were different classes of society, when in reality there was only one class, what might be called the dog-eat-dog -dog class. He should have been aware of this when he had seen how careful Chaaka was to never allow anyone within striking distance of him, and how he vanished each night to some hidden spot. This was free enterprise with a vengeance, carried to its absolute extreme, with every man out for himself, every other man's hand turned against him, and your station in life determined by the strength of your arm and the speed of your reflexes. Anyone who stayed alone placed himself outside this society, and was therefore an enemy of it and sure to be killed on sight. All of which added up to the fact that he had to kill Chaaka if he wanted to get ahead. He still had no desire to do it, but he had to. That night he watched Chaaka when he slipped away from the others, and Jason made a careful note of the direction that he took. Of course, the slave-master would circle about before he concealed himself, but with a little luck Jason would find him and kill him. He had no special love of midnight assassination, and until landing on this planet had always believed that killing a sleeping man was a cowardly way to terminate another's existence. But special conditions demanded special solutions, and he was no match for the heavily armored man in open combat. Therefore, the assassin's knife. Or, rather, sharpened horn. He managed to doze fitfully until some time after midnight then slipped silently from under his skin coverings. Silently he skirted the sleepers and crept into the darkness between the dunes. Finding Chaaka in the wilderness of the desert night was not easy, yet Jason persisted. He made careful sweeps in wider and wider arcs, working his way out from the sleeping slaves. There were gullies and shadowed ravines, and all of them had to be searched with the utmost care. The slave-master was sleeping in one of them, and would be alert for any sound. The fact that he had also made special precautions to guard against assassination was only apparent to Jason after he heard the bell ring. It was a tiny sound, barely detectable, but he froze instantly. There was a thin strand pressing against his arm, and when he drew back carefully the bell sounded again. He cursed silently for his stupidity only remembering now about the bells he had heard from Chaaka's sleeping site. The slaver must surround himself every night with a network of string that would sound alarm bells if anyone attempted to approach in the dark. Slowly and soundlessly Jason drew back deeper into the gully. With a thud of rushing feet Chaaka appeared, swinging his club around his head, coming directly towards Jason. Jason rolled desperately sideways, and the club crashed into the ground. Then he was up and running at top speed down the gully. Rocks twisted under his feet, and he knew that if he tripped, he was dead. Yet he had no choice other than flight. The heavily armored Chaaka could not keep up with him, and Jason managed to stay on his feet until the other was left behind. Chaaka shouted with rage and hurled curses after him, but he could not catch him. Jason, panting for breath, vanished into the darkness and made a slow circle back to the sleeping camp. The noise would have roused them, and he stayed away for an estimated hour, shivering in the icy pre-dawn before he slipped back to his waiting skins. The sky was beginning to gray, and he lay awake wondering if he had been recognized. He did not think he had. As the red sun climbed over the horizon, Chaaka appeared on top of the dunes, shaking with rage. Who did it? he screamed. Who came in night? He stalked among them, glaring right and left, and no one stirred except to draw away from his stamping feet. Who did it? he shouted again as he came near the spot where Jason lay. Five slaves pointed silently at Jason. Cursing their betrayal, Jason sprang up and ran from the whistling club. 
He had the sharpened horn in his hand, but he knew better than to try and stand up to Ch'aka in open combat. There had to be another way. He looked back quickly to see his enemy still following and narrowly missed tripping over the outstretched leg of a slave. They were all against him. They were all against each other, and no man was safe from any other man's hand. He ran free of the slaves and scrambled to the top of a shifting dune, pulling himself up the steep slope by clutching at the coarse grass on the summit. He turned at the top and kicked sand into Ch'aka's face, trying to blind him, but had to run whenever the slaver swung down his crossbow and notched a steel quarrel. Ch'aka chased him again, panting heavily. Jason was tiring now, and he knew this was the best time to launch a counterattack. The slaves were out of sight, and it would be a battle only between the two of them. Scrambling up a slope of broken rock, he reversed himself suddenly and leaped back down. Ch'aka was taken by surprise and had his club only half raised when Jason was upon him, and he swung wildly. Jason ducked under the blow and used Ch'aka's momentum to help throw him as he grabbed the club arm and pulled. Face down, the armored man crashed against the stones, and Jason was straddling his back even as he fell, clutching for his chin. He lacerated his fingers on a jagged tooth necklace, then grasped the man's thick beard and pulled back. For a single long instant, before he could writhe free and roll over, Ch'aka's head was stretched back, and in that instant Jason plunged the sharp horn deep into the soft flesh of the throat. Hot blood burst over his hand, and Ch'aka shuddered horribly under him and died. Jason climbed wearily to his feet, suddenly exhausted. He was alone with his victim. The cold wind swept about them, carrying the rustling grains of sand, chilling the sweat on the body. Sighing once, he wiped his bloody hands on the sand and began to strip the corpse. Thick straps held the shell helmet over the dead man's head, and when he unknotted them and pulled it away, he saw that Ch'aka was well past middle age. There was some gray in his beard, but his scraggly hair was completely gray, his face and balding head pallid white from being concealed under the helmet. It took a long time to get the wrappings and armor off and retie them over himself, but it was finally done. Under the skin and claw wrappings on Ch'aka's feet were Jason's boots, filthy but undamaged, and Jason drew them on happily. When at last, after scouring it out with sand he had strapped on the helmet, Ch'aka was reborn. The corpse on the sand was just another dead slave. Jason scraped a shallow grave, interred and covered it, then slung about with weapons, bags, and crossbow, the club in his hand. He stalked back to the waiting slaves. As soon as he appeared they scrambled to their feet and formed a line. Jason saw Ijal looking at him worriedly, trying to discover who had won the battle. Score one for the visiting team, he called out, and she gave him a small, frightened smile and turned away. About face all, and head back the way we came. There is a new day dawning for you slaves. I know you don't believe this yet, but there are some big changes in store. He whistled while he strolled after the line and chewed happily on the first crenoy that was found. Chapter 6 That evening they built a fire on the beach, and Jason sat with his back to the safety of the sea. He took his helmet off, the thing was giving him a headache, and called Ijal over to him. I hear Ch'aka, I obey. She ran hurriedly over to him and flopped onto the sand. I want to talk to you, Jason said, and my name is Jason, not Ch'aka. Yes, Ch'aka, she said darting a quick glance at his exposed face, then turning away. He grumbled and pushed the basket of Krenoy over to her. I can see where it is not going to be an easy thing changing this social setup. Tell me, do you or any of the others ever have any desire to be free? What is free? Well, I suppose that answers my question. Free is what you are when you are not a slave or a slave owner free to go where you want and do what you want. I wouldn't like that, she shivered. Who would take care of me? How would I find any Krenoy? It takes many people together to find Krenoy. One alone would starve. If you are free, you can combine with other free people and look for Krenoy together. That is stupid. Whoever found would eat and not share unless a master made him. I like to eat. Jason rasped his sprouting beard. 
We all like to eat, but that doesn't mean we have to be slaves. But I can see that unless there are some radical changes in this environment, I am not going to have much luck in freeing anyone, and I had better take all the precautions of a Ch'aka to see that I can stay alive." He picked up his club and stalked off into the darkness, silently circling the camp until he found a good-sized knoll with smooth sides. Working by touch, he pulled the little pegs from their bag and planted them in rows, carefully laying the leather strings in their forked tops. The ends of the strings were fastened to delicately balanced steel bells that tinkled at the slightest touch. Thus protected, he lay down in the center of his warning spider-web and spent a restless night half-awake, waiting tensely for the bells to ring. In the morning the march continued, and they came to the barrier cairn, and when the slaves stopped, Jason urged them past it. They did this happily, looking forward to witnessing a good fight for possession of the violated territory. Their hopes were justified when later in the day the other row of slaves was seen far off to the right, and a figure detached itself and ran toward them. "'Hate you, Ch'aka!' Fasimba shouted as he ran up, only this time he meant what he said. "'Coming on my ground, I kill you!' "'Not yet,' Jason called out, and hate you, Fasimba. Sorry, I forgot the formalities.' I don't want any of your land, and the old treaty, or whatever it is, still holds. I just want to talk to you." Fasimba stopped, but kept his stone hammer ready, very suspicious. "'You got new voice, Ch'aka.' "'I got new Ch'aka. Old Ch'aka now pushing up the daisies. I want to trade back a slave from you, and then we'll go.' Ch'aka fight hard. You must be good fighter, Ch'aka." He shook his hammer angrily. Not as good as me, Chaka. You're the tops, Fasimba. Nine slaves out of ten want you for a master. Look, can't we get to the point? Then I'll get my mob out of here. He looked at the row of approaching slaves, trying to pick out Micah. I want back the slave who had the hole in his head. I'll give you two slaves in trade. Your choice. What do you say to that? Good trade, Chaka. You pick one of mine. Take the best. I'll take two of yours, but hole in head gone. Too much trouble. Talk all the time. I got sore foot from kicking him. Got rid of him. Did you kill him? Don't waste slaves. Traded him to the Zertanoi. Got arrows. You want arrows? Not this time, Fasimba, but thanks for the information. He rooted around in a pouch and pulled out a krenoi. Here, have something to eat. Where you get poisoned krenoi? Fasimba asked with interest. I could use a poisoned krenoi. This isn't poisoned. It's perfectly edible, or at least as edible as these things ever are. Fasimba laughed. You pretty funny, Ch'aka. I give you one arrow for poisoned krenoi. You're on, Jason said, throwing the krenoi to the ground between them. But I tell you, it's perfectly good. That's what I tell man I give it to. I got good use for a poisoned krenoi. He threw an arrow into the sand away from them and grabbed up the vegetable as he left. When Jason picked up the arrow, it bent, and he saw that it was rusted almost completely in two and that the break had been craftily covered by clay. That's all right, he called after the retreating slaver. Just wait until your friend eats the krenoi. The march continued, first back to the boundary cairn with the suspicious Fasimba dogging their steps. Only after Jason and his band had passed the border did the others return to their normal foraging. They began the long walk to the borders of the inland desert. Since they had to search for Krenoi as they went, it took them the better part of three days to reach their destination. Jason merely started the line in the correct direction, but as soon as he was out of sight of the sea, he had only a rough idea of the correct course. However, he did not confide his ignorance to the slaves, and they marched steadily on, along what was obviously a well-known route to them. Along the way they collected and consumed a good number of krenoi, found two wells from which they refilled the skin bags, and pointed out a huddled animal sitting by a hole that Jason, to their unvoiced disgust, managed to miss completely with a bolt from the crossbow. On the morning of the third day, Jason saw a line of demarcation on the flattened horizon, and before the midday meal they came to a sea of billowing bluish-gray sand. The ending of what he had been accustomed to thinking of as the desert was startling. 
Beneath their feet were yellow sand and gravel, while occasional shrubs managed a sickly existence, as did some grass and the life-giving crenoy. Animals, as well as men, lived here, and, ruthless though survival was, they were at least alive. In the wastes ahead no life was possible or visible, though there seemed to be no doubt that the Zertanoi lived there. This must mean that, though it looked unlimited, as Ijal believed it to be, there were probably arable lands on the other side. Mountains as well, if they weren't just clouds, since a line of gray peaks could just be made out on the distant horizon. Where do we find the Zertanoi? he asked the nearest slave, who merely scowled and looked away. Jason was having a problem with discipline. The slaves would not do a thing, he asked, unless he kicked them. Their conditioning had been so thorough that an order unaccompanied by a kick just wasn't an order, and his continued reluctance to impose the physical coercion with the spoken command was just being taken as a sign of weakness. Already some of the burlier slaves were licking their lips and sizing him up. His efforts to improve the life of the slaves were being blocked completely by the slaves themselves. With a mumbled curse at the obduracy of the human race, Jason sank the toe of his boot into the man. Find them there, by Big Rock, was the immediate response. There was a dark spot at the desert's edge in the indicated direction, and when they approached, Jason saw that it was an outcropping of rock that had been built up with a wall of bricks or boulders to a uniform height. A good number of men could be concealed behind that wall, and he was not going to risk his precious slaves or even more precious skin anywhere near it. At his shout the line halted and settled to the sand while he stalked a few meters in front, settling his club in his hand and suspiciously examined the structure. That there were unseen watchers was proven when a man appeared from around the corner and walked slowly towards Jason. He was dressed in loose-fitting robes and carried a basket on one arm, and when he had reached a point roughly halfway between Jason and the rock he had just quitted, he halted and sat cross-legged in the sand, the basket at his side. Jason looked carefully in all directions and decided the position was safe enough. There were no places of concealment where armed men might have hidden, and he had no fear of the single man. Club ready, he walked out and stopped a full three paces from the other. "'Welcome, Jaka," the man said. "'I was afraid we wouldn't be seeing you again after that little difficulty we had.' He remained seated while he talked, stroking the few strands of his scraggly beard. His head was shaven smooth and as sunburned and leathery brown as the rest of his face, the most prominent feature of which was the magnificent prow of a nose that terminated in flaring nostrils and was used as sturdy support for a pair of handmade sunglasses. They appeared to be carved completely of bone and fit tightly to the face. Their flat, solid fronts were cut with thin, transverse slashes. This eye protection, the things could only have been for weak eyes, and the network of wrinkles indicated the man was quite old and would present no danger to Jason. "'I want something,' Jason said in straightforward, Ch'akish manner. "'A new voice and a new Ch'aka, I bid you welcome. The old one was a dog, and I hope he died in great pain when you killed him. Now sit, friend Ch'aka, and drink with me.' He carefully opened the basket and removed a stone crock and two crockery mugs. "'Where you get poison drink?' Jason asked, remembering his local manners. The Zertano was a smart one and had been able to tell instantly from Jason's voice that there had been a change in slaves. "'And what is your name?' "'Edipon,' the ancient said, as uninsulted he put the drinking apparatus back into the basket. What is it that you want, within reason, that is? We always need slaves, and we are willing to trade. I want slave you got. I trade you two for one. The seated man smiled coldly from beneath the shelter of his nose. It is not necessary to talk as ungrammatically as the coastal barbarian, since I can tell by your accent that you are a man of education. What slave is it that you want? The one that you just received from Fasimba. He belongs to me. Jason abandoned his linguistic ruse and put himself even more on guard, taking a quick look around at the empty sands. This dried-up old bird was a lot brighter than he looked, and he would have to stay on guard. "'Is that all you want?' Edipon asked. "'All I can think of at this moment. You produce this slave, and perhaps we can talk more business.' 
I have an even better idea than that. Edipon's laugh had very dirty overtones, and Jason sprang back when the oldster put two fingers into his mouth and whistled shrilly between them. There was the rustle of shifting sand, and Jason wheeled to see the men apparently climbing out of the empty desert, pushing back wooden covers over which the sand had been smoothed. There were six of them, with shields and clubs, and Jason cursed his stupidity at meeting Edipon on a spot of the other's choosing. He swung his club behind him, but the oldster was already scampering for the safety of the rock. Jason howled in anger and ran at the nearest man, who was still only halfway out of his hiding place. The man took Jason's blow on his upraised shield and was toppled back into the pit by the force of it. Jason ran on, but another was ahead of him, swinging his own war-club in readiness. There was no way around, so Jason ran into him at full speed with all his pendant teeth and horns gnashing and clattering. The man fell back under the attack, and Jason split his head with his club, and would have done further damage except that the other men arrived at that moment and he had to face them. It was a brief and wicked battle, with Jason giving just a little more than he received. Two of the attackers were down, and a third holding his cracked head when the weight of numbers carried Jason to the ground. He called to his slaves for aid, then cursed them when they only remained seated, while his arms were pinioned with rope and his weapons stripped from his body. One of the victors waved to the slaves, who now stood and docilely marched into the desert. Jason was dragged, snarling with rage, in the same direction. There was a wide opening in the desert-facing side of the wall, and once through it Jason's anger instantly vanished. Here was one of the Karoi that Ijal had told him about. There could be no doubt of it. He could now understand how, to her uneducated eye, there could exist an uncertainty as to whether the thing was an animal or not. The vehicle was a good ten meters long, shaped roughly like a boat, and bore on the front a large and obviously false animal head, covered with fur and resplendent with rows of carved teeth and glistening crystal eyes. There were hide coverings, and not too realistic legs hanging about the thing. Surely not enough camouflage to fool a sophisticated six-year-old. This sort of disguise might be good enough to take in the ignorant savages, but the same civilized child would recognize this as a vehicle as soon as he saw the six large wheels below. They were cut with deep treads and made from some resilient-looking substance. No motive power was visible, but Jason almost hooted with joy at the prominent stink of burnt fuel. This crude-looking contrivance had some artificial source of power, which might be the product of a local industrial revolution or have been purchased from off-world traders. Either possibility offered the chance of eventual escape from this nameless planet. The slaves, some of them cringing with terror of the unknown, were kicked up the gangplank and into the Karoi. Four of the huskies who had subdued and bound Jason carried him up and dumped him onto the deck where he lay quietly and examined what could be seen of the desert vehicle's mechanism. A post projected from the front of the deck, and one of the men fitted what could only have been a tiller handle over the squared top of it. If this monolithic apparatus steered with the front pair of wheels, it must be driven with the rear. So Jason flopped around on the deck until he could look toward the stern. A cabin, the width of the deck, was situated here, windowless, and with a single inset door fitted with a grand selection of locks and bolts. Any doubt that this was the engine room was displaced by the black metal smokestack that ran up through the cabin roof. We are leaving, Edipon screeched, and waved his thin arms in the air. Bring in the entranceway. Narcissi, stand forward to indicate the way to the Karoi. Now. All pray as I go into the shrine to induce the sacred powers to move us toward Putulko. He started toward the cabin, then stopped to point to one of the club-bearers. Erebo, you lazy sod, did you remember to fill the water-cup of the gods this time? Because they grow thirsty. I, I filled it, I filled it, Erebo muttered, chewing on a looted crenoy. Preparations made, Edipon went into the recessed doorway and pulled a concealing curtain over it. There was much clanging and rattling as the locks and bolts were opened, and he let himself inside. Within a few minutes a black cloud of greasy smoke rolled out of the smokestack and was whipped away by the wind. Almost an hour passed before the sacred powers were ready to move, and they announced their willingness to proceed by screaming and blowing their white breath up in the air. 
Four of the slaves screamed counterpoint and fainted, while the rest looked as if they would be happier off dead. Jason had had some experience with primitive machines before, so the safety valve on the boiler came as no great surprise. He was also prepared when the vehicle shuddered and began to move slowly out into the desert. From the amount of smoke and the quantity of steam escaping from under the stern, he didn't think the engine was very efficient, but primitive as it was, it moved the caroy and its load of passengers across the sand at a creeping yet steady pace. There were more screams from the slaves, and a few tried to leap over the side but were clubbed down. The robe-wrapped Zertanoi were firmly working their way through the ranks of the captives, pouring ladlefuls of dark liquid down their throats. The first ones to receive it were already slumped unconscious or dead, though the chances were better that they were unconscious since there was no reason for their captors to kill them after going to such lengths to get them in the first place. Jason believed this, but the terrified slaves did not have the solace of his philosophy, so struggled on, thinking they were fighting for their lives. When Jason's turn came, he did not submit meekly, in spite of his beliefs, and managed to bite some fingers and kick one man in the stomach before they sat on him, held his nose, and poured a measure of the burning liquid down his throat. It hurt, and he was dizzy, and he tried to will himself to throw up, but this was the last thing that he remembered. End of Part 2 of The Ethical Engineer by Harry Harrison